Good morning. My name is Barry Pat. If you're if you're new here, and uh, uh, I have the privilege of serving as the care and discipleship pastor. And today I have the honor of uh, preaching the word of God to you through this most iconic of passages. Um, this, of course, is one of the best known and maybe maybe one of the most quoted texts in all of Scripture. But yet the irony is that I would contend that the truths of this text also represent uh, one of the greatest struggles of both followers and non-followers of Christ. So today we're going to be addressing the issue of contentment. Contentment is that thing that is, is universally desired, right? Diligently pursued by most, and yet it's mysteriously elusive to the vast majority of us. I guess that would explain why Paul, uh, in this text, describes it as a secret. And my message to you today is that God not only desires for each of us to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, he commands it. So my prayer today is that God would open our eyes to take steps towards living and what scripture would call true contentment. So let me pray to that end before we begin. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we know that you are good and we know that you desire good for us. You desire that all who follow you as Lord and Savior would live content lives. Father, would you uh, forgive us for all the ways that we functionally doubt you and distrust you through our discontent? God, open our eyes today to behold wondrous things from your word. Because to the degree that we see you rightly, we will live lives of contentment. And we pray all this in your name, amen. So, as always, before we uh, get into the weeds of a text, I think it's always best to <clears throat> kind of fly over from a distance so we, we see the context and see the, the big picture first. And I think the context here is best seen in, in uh, verses 10 through 20 as a whole. Because it's in this section that Paul is, is primarily telling the Philippian church, he's simply saying, thank you. Thank you for the provisions that you provided to me through Epaphroditus. We don't know exactly uh, what they sent him. Could have been food, could have been money, could have been other necessities. We just know that as, as Paul wraps up this letter to them, he wants to do what all hosts would do and just be gracious and say thank you for the provisions that they blessed him with. And that's the overall context of the section. But of course we know Paul is a teacher and teachers have to teach. So therefore, even in his giving thanks, Paul sees this teachable moment to instruct them about the importance of contentment. As I began to meditate on this, on this text, I think there were three primary questions that stood out to me that I, I think would be good to answer today. And the three questions are, number one, 
What is the secret of being content in any and every situation? Question two, how do you learn the secret? And question three, why is it a secret anyway? Now, conventional wisdom would probably say for me not to share the secret until the very end so I can kind of you know, build suspense and, and keep you engaged throughout. But seeing as that I'm actually neither very conventional or particularly wise, I, I'll share with you what I believe Paul would say the secret is right up front. Paul makes this bold statement that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether in abundance or need. And I think the, the obvious answer to the secret is, of course, verse 13, to, to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I suspect we've all heard the many ways that this verse has been abused and, and what it doesn't mean. What I want to focus on today is what it does mean. What are all things? And how does Christ strengthen you to do them? I think when you examine the lives of, uh, of Jesus and Paul side by side, and both you see a, a radical commitment to three things. They both had a radical commitment to number one, spending time alone in God's presence. Number two, they had a radical contentment to being about the Father's business. They were on mission. And three, they had a radical contentment to wholeheartedly trusting God's providence in all things. So you see, for both men, their strength came from devoted time and solitude and prayer. That's where the strength came from. Jesus was always separating himself from the crowds and his disciples to pray. We read this in Matthew 14, 23, where it says, after he had sent them away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. In Matthew and Mark 1, 35, it says, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and slipped out to the solitary place to pray. Luke 6, 12, in those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. In Luke 5, 16, he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Likewise, throughout his letter, Paul also speaks about devoting himself continuously to prayer and meditation. Through the strength found in prayer, we see both men have a laser focus on fulfilling their God-given mission and purpose in life. We see this as Jesus says in John 16, 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then just a little bit before that in John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see the zeal for mission. And similarly, Paul states the sole focus of his life in Acts 20, 24, where he says, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. For both men, their time alone in prayer 
strengthen them to fully trust the providence of God even amid great suffering, which they both endured. We think of providence, I think of uh, inside the word providence is the word provide. So when I say providence, I think the first meaning is a belief that God will indeed provide, as scripture says, provide all your needs according to his riches and glory, which we will explore in more depth next week. But you see, providence is also, I think, the belief that God orchestrates all of the events of our lives to the praise of his glory and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what is the secret to being content in any and every situation? Devote yourselves to continuously being in God's presence through prayer, meditation, study. Here he will strengthen you to first obey his command to love people by devoting your life to making disciples. And second, it's here that you will learn to trust God sovereignly. Trust that he is orchestrating every circumstance and event of your life according to his good and perfect will. And to the degree that you do those things, you are learning the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. So I guess the good news is if you can confidently sit here today and, and, say, and, and say you can check all of those boxes and your, your life is marked by, by complete contentment, then you are free to either head to lunch or I guess come up here and finish the sermon because you're way ahead of me on this stuff. <laughs> and for the rest of you, assuming that no one actually wants to come up here and finish the sermon, uh, um, let's move on to the second question. How do you learn the secret? How do you learn the secret? I think that this question is where we're going to camp out the most today. You see, I think the most critical word in this whole text is probably the word learn. We see it twice. Verse 11, for I have learned to be content. Again, in verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. I think learn is a crucial word because it means that the understanding for the secret for Paul wasn't this dramatic epiphany that suddenly went, went off in his head. There was no light bulb that suddenly came out at some point. It indicates that he learned this secret over years of trials and triumph through tears and joys. It's probably good to remember here that Paul is at the end of his life when he writes this letter to the Philippians. Scholars have put the, the time of this writing about AD 62, and it's believed that Paul was martyred in Rome around AD 64. Paul was probably somewhere in his 60s when he died. So the point is that this is an older guy sharing what he has learned over the course of his life. And how did he learn the lessons? Well, our, I think our text would indicate that the, the school of contentment consists of two courses. One is the having plenty and abundance class, and the other is the being brought low and in need class. 
You find that the curriculum is completely customized for every student, and the only prerequisite to enrolling in the school is becoming a devoted follower of Christ. Now, to be fair, I think there is a similar school for those who don't follow Christ with essentially the same courses, um, but that course is called The Life is Pointless and Then You Die School. And ironically, its enrollment is far larger than the School of Contentment. But you see, throughout Paul's letters, he shares his experiences in both courses. He acknowledges that that many times he was greatly admired. He was respected in most of the churches that he planted. In fact, in in, in Acts 14, Paul actually had to stop the people from, from worshiping him after a miraculous miracle or miraculous healing. While he was in Philippi, scripture indicates that his team lived with the very wealthy lady Lydia. She was the first convert at at, at Philippi, and she actually housed the church in her home. So, So Paul knew how to live with plenty and in abundance. However, we also read in 2 Corinthians 11.24, Paul says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. You see, all of this describes how Paul learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. But of course, the question I posed was not how Paul learned the secret, but how do we learn the secret? And I think the the, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that we learn it the same way. Plenty and want will either expose the lie of false contentment or it will affirm that you have indeed learned the secret of genuine contentment. They are the litmus test of contentment. So I want to explore both classes for just a minute. And actually, I want to start with abundance and plenty. Because contrary to what you might think, I would contend it's probably the more challenging class. And maybe for us, the more important to learn. I mean, we only have to really look at our own culture, right? America is not only the wealthiest nation in human history. I think it's safe to say that, sadly, it's also the most discontent. And the sad reality is that the more that you pursue and acquire things that are supposed to bring contentment, the more discontent you become. Anybody found that to be true? I heard Tim Keller once reference an article by a New York writer by the name of Cynthia Heimel. 
Cynthia was acquainted with, with many of the New York celebrities. And she wrote an article in which she said this. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And I might add that um, Cynthia Heimel was not a Christian. In fact, in the very same article, she went on to say this. She said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now, of course, that is a horrifically false portrayal of God. But the point is, is that even the secular world understands that contentment is not achieved through material wealth or power or acclaim. Compare this with what Paul writes to, first, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, where he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, just to be clear, this passage is not saying that we should sell everything and live in a tent with only the clothes on our back. Look at it closely. The text is, warning, is a warning to those who what? Want to be rich. It's to those who love money. Not everyone who God has blessed with abundance. We see this in, in a, few, a few verses later in verses 17 through 19, where he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Notice that he didn't instruct Timothy to tell the rich of the present age to sell everything they had. 
Rather, he told them to tell them not to put their hope in the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. The course objective for the abundance class is not ridding yourself of abundance. It's God's good gift. The objective is learning to hold it loosely if God blesses you with it. Use it for his glory and enjoy it without needing it. When by God's strength, you are entirely devoted to your God-given mission, it is then that you will begin to see abundance as fuel for mission rather than a source of contentment. Use your God-given abundance to do good and be rich in good works. Be generous and willing to share. If God has blessed you with wealth, use it joyfully for God's glory, for the spread of the gospel, to care for those in need. In Hebrews 13, 5, the writer provides, I think, another clue on how we learn contentment and abundance. He says there, in, uh, starting in verse 5, Chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Interesting reason for why he says, don't be, be satisfied with what you have. And I think what the writer of, of Hebrews is tapping into here is the connection between contentment and security. I bet if you ask just about anyone who, who zealously works to, to build an extensive financial portfolio, ask them what motivates them, and the answer will almost invariably revolve around contentment and security. Especially in our culture, people are obsessed with protecting themselves against financial crisis and setting themselves up for, for an early and comfortable retirement. Those with large financial portfolios often nervously read the financial news every day, worried about what the stock market might have done or what it may do because their hope for contentment and security is found in their wealth. And scripture says, stop. Contentment and security are not found in your stuff or your portfolio. God is saying in these texts, if you've put your hope and trust in me, relax. Be content. I promised that I would never leave you. I promised I would never abandon you. I promised that I would provide for your needs just as I do for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, neither of which knows anything about a retirement plan or a portfolio. See, the fact is, by God's grace, virtually every one of us here is living in abundance to some degree, right? The question we have to ask ourselves is, is our abundance flowing through us in obedience to God and building his kingdom, or is it flowing to us to build our kingdom? Did you hear that? Let me say it again, because I think it is so, this is so important. 
Think of yourself. Is your abundance flowing through you in obedience to God to build his kingdom? Or would the evidence say that your abundance is flowing to you to build your kingdom? And I think it's a, it is a critically important question. Because just as I, I read earlier, one plunges people into ruin and destruction and the other leads to taking hold of what is truly life. Okay, so we've, we've talked about the, the abundance class. Now let's explore the second course of the curriculum on contentment. The secret to learning contentment is not just learning to be content with plenty, but the text says it's also being satisfied when being brought low and hungry and in need. I think it's in this course that learning to trust the providence of God is essential to being content. Spurgeon expressed this eloquently as he always seems to do when he said this. He says, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, God would have put you there. You are put by, you are put by him in the most suitable place and if you had the picking of your lot, half an hour afterwards, you would have come back and said, Lord, choose for me. I have not chosen the best after all. And times of need and being brought low is where we learn to distinguish between comfort and contentment. I mean, let's face it, we are inundated almost every moment of every day by countless marketing tools that strategically aim to blur both of these lines for us, right? I mean, we don't just deserve to buy each other his and hers luxury cars at Christmas that, that drive by themselves and are, and are decked out with uh, temperature-controlled seat warmers and TVs in front of every seat. No, we need them. <laughs> and why do we need them? Because they'll make us comfortable. And when we are comfortable, then we are content. And there you have the American dream. The message of Paul to the Philippians and to us today is that it's a lie. It's a trap. It doesn't lead to comfort and contentment. It leads to destruction. The secret to contentment is not found in the abundance of comfort. Most often and most authentically, it's found in its absence. I mean, I think of just recently, we had a couple guys um, from our church. Both suffered terribly from COVID pneumonia for several weeks. One faced the real possibility of not surviving it. But I've talked to both of those guys and you know what? Neither guy is angry or disappointed with God. And if they could rewind the tape, both would say that they wouldn't change anything. Why? I mean, certainly not because they love being sick and not being able to breathe. Instead, it's because the terrible discomfort of illness 
drew them into a sweeter communion with God than either had ever experienced before. They would both say that being brought low in illness led them to savor scripture and relish prayer like they never had before. It was in the very midst of the most significant discomfort that either had ever experienced that they better learned the secret of contentment. So what am I saying? That we should be glad when life rains on us? I think scripture does. I mean, James 1, 2 through 4 says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I mean, I think it's a fair definition of contentment would be the state of lacking nothing, right? So James argues if you really desire contentment, then rejoice when the trials come because they're the very soil that God uses to produce true contentment. I mean, I think there is no shortage of examples of this in Scripture. For those who are <coughs> uh, tracking with the CBR journal, I think we saw a beautiful example of this recently in the book of Daniel. I actually wrote a short devotional to my mentoring group on, on, on the verse, Daniel 6, verse 10. In this verse, we read this. It says, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into the house, went to his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, to give some context to this, this verse is the, is the prequel to the lion's den event, right? Daniel was one of the many exiles who was forced to move to Babylon after King Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. And soon after being brought low through being taken from his homeland and becoming an exile, he then experienced plenty when he was selected to serve in a king's court. And even here, he displayed his contentment in God when he refused the delicacies of eating the same food as the king. Instead, he chose a diet of vegetables, requested it. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have passed that test. <laughs> and soon after that, he was promoted even higher when he was the only one able to interpret the king's dream and recount what the dream was without being told. King loved him, made him number two in the whole kingdom. But of course, that didn't go well with his co-workers. This led to a great deal of jealousy among the other servants and leaders to the point that they actually hatched a plan to have Daniel killed. You see, they knew that Daniel was devoted to God and they had witnessed him every day praying by his window multiple times each day. So they got this idea and they tricked the king into signing a document that stated that anyone found worshiping or praying to any God other than the king would be fed to lions. Lions. 
And this is where we find ourselves in verse 10. When Daniel heard that the, that the, that the, signed, that, that the king had signed the document, which was intended for his assassination, he immediately began to panic and began to plan revenge. No. It's not what it says, does it? What does it say? It says he went to his room and he did the same thing that he did every day in precisely the same place, knowing full well that it was that very practice that would likely cost him his life. But maybe what is most striking in the phrase, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God. Now, full confession. If I ever found out that 122 of my coworkers had banded together to have me murdered, I very well may run to prayer. <laughs> However, it likely wouldn't be in the very place that someone could use against me in my trial. And my prayers would almost certainly be pretty heavy on the side of petition rather than thanksgiving. Am I the only one? But you see, like Paul, Daniel had learned the secret of being content, whether he had enjoyed the king's admiration or whether he was facing a brutal execution. We can't look over that last phrase. Three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Why was Daniel able to keep doing what he had done before? Knowing the risk? Clearly it's because his trust in the divine providence of God didn't flinch when his circumstances took a drastic turn for the worse. He had learned the secret of contentment. In fact, even when the plot against him seemed to work and he was about to be thrown into the lion's den, by all accounts, it was the king is the one who was sleepless and distressed over it, not Daniel. So finally, I want to take just a few minutes and I want to explore our third question. Why does Paul refer to learning to be content as a secret. Why is it a secret? And I think there's both a practical and a theological answer to this. The practical answer is it's a secret because there's actually very few people who learn it. I mean, everyone wants to be content, but the people who are genuinely content and learn it, I would contend are few and far between. I think this is largely because contentment doesn't come to us naturally. Not for any of us. Which is why we have to learn it. And it's a challenging class, right? I mean, no one here has to, has to be taught how to worry. You don't have to be taught how to stress or fear or be anxious. These are our natural states, aren't they? Contentment is elusive. Elusive. 
Contentment is like, is like the rabbit at a greyhound track. It's always close enough just to keep the dogs running, but it's always just out of reach. That's the practical answer. The theological one takes us back to verse 13. The ultimate coffee cup verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is not talking about leaping over tall buildings here, obviously, right? He's talking about contentment. He's saying contentment is only learned through knowing, treasuring, and trusting Christ. The verse says, I can do all things through him. Through him means he's not just the source of true contentment, he's also the means. He's not just the destination, he's also the transportation. Unless God opens your eyes and begins to teach you that contentment is only found in him and through him, you will never, ever be content. You can read every self-help book in Barnes and Noble and you'll still be just like the greyhounds, never able to catch what you so desperately pursue and clueless that you aren't even chasing a real rabbit. Jesus himself says, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and few find it. And he also says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Learning contentment is a secret because God is the only one who can reveal the secret. And unless he chooses to reveal it in us, through the many trials and blessings of this life, we will never figure it out. He alone provides the path, the guidance, and the strength to learn the secret of contentment. And he alone is the secret. This is what Augustine meant when he so beautifully wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This truth is the great hope of the gospel. That God didn't leave us stumbling in darkness with no hope of ever finding contentment. Jesus declared, he said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Contentment is learned when you can say, like the great hymn writer, Horatio Spafford, when peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, with my soul. So as the, as the musicians come and I close and we prepare for communion, you know, for the, for the majority of you here today who, who have put your hope and trust in Christ and you desire to follow him, be encouraged. By his grace, God has put you on the narrow path that leads to life, and he is working all things for your good. 
and every trial, every blessing. He's teaching you the secret of finding your contentment in him alone. So as you take communion today, remember this. And remember the great price that he willingly paid out of his extravagant love for you so that you might indeed find contentment in him. But there may be some of you here today who are in a state of great discontentment. Your life is filled with uncertainty, fear, despair, hopelessness. My message to you is Christ is calling you today to let go of all of the earthly things that you have futilely looked to and pursued to provide the contentment that has been so elusive. He's called you to humbly ask him to lead you on the only path that leads to true contentment in and through him. And I urge you with everything in me not to dismiss that call. Acknowledge that you have sinfully turned your back on God in your self-sufficient pursuit. Ask him to forgive your sinfulness and ask him to be your Lord and Savior from this day forward. And then begin to trust that he is leading you toward the narrow gate where you can begin to learn true contentment. And if you do that, then join us in taking communion together in celebration for what he has done and will do in your life. Pray with me. Oh, Father, in this broken and anxious world, we, we say to you like the Apostle Peter, Lord, where else would we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Father, help us to trust better your providence that out of your love and care for us that sometimes did you lead us beside still waters. And yet sometimes you lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. But God, we know that in both places that you are with us and you are teaching us the secret of finding our contentment in you. Because with you as our shepherd, we shall not want. Thank you for, for willingly paying the ransom price for our souls that, that we might rest in the great peace and hope that we will one day dwell with you in the house of the Lord forever where we will fully know and live in contentment. And it's in your holy name that we pray.